But welcome, everybody. It really is so great to have you all joining us this morning. Uh, we're, uh, or should I say, over the last two weeks, uh, we've been covering a series called The Good Book. Uh, it's been devoted to uh, exploring some answers to some questions about the Bible. Uh, it's been about questions that tackle its relevance, its reliability as a book. How can and should the Bible be interpreted? Things like that. It's been an apologetics style series, I guess, if you want to call it that. Apologetics simply means defending the Christian faith. So it's kind of had that little slant to it. And so as a quick recap, in week one, we looked at the very important tests that the Bible has to go through. Just like any other book from ancient history, there's a couple of tests that it had to pass from a completely secular point of view. We asked the question, can the Bible be regarded as a trustworthy book? Is it reliable? Is it, does, it, does it have validity in terms of the claims that it makes? And we discovered in week one that the answer is an absolute yes. The Bible is completely trustworthy in that it stands head and shoulders, in fact, above all of the other tests that these other historic books have gone through. So that was a, a, a really good sort of first foundation that, yes, the Bible is from a completely secular point of view, something that passes the test. And then we also, remember, took a little slant and we said, not only does it tick those boxes, but it was also something that the people who wrote the book were willing to die for. And that's where it became a little bit different, a little bit separate from all the other ancient books that we have. The people that were in it literally were killed for what they wrote, what they believed about what they wrote. Uh, and then last week, week two, we followed on with that and said, even despite its validity, despite its trustworthiness, we as people can sometimes read the Bible with a veil. We spoke about the veil that covered Moses' face, remember? And we've said that we can too approach the Bible with a veil. Suppose you had a fight with someone, you're angry with them. Now, every verse you read, you're looking for that thing to use as a hook. Ah, I'm going to attack this person with this thing. It's because you've read it with the veil of your anger, right? Uh, and that's how people take Bible verses completely out of context and really do some damage and make people confused. Anyone ever been on the receiving end of a prophecy like that? It kind of got weird, you know? And the lesson that we learned from last week was take the veil away. Don't, don't read scripture through the lens of our broken humanity, through our flaws, through our shortcomings. And so now, hopefully, we've got a bit of information, a bit of revelation that if someone does give us a, a weird prophecy, just go, just uh, give me that verse again, please. I'm going to go read it in its context, because that's the message, right? Not this other thing that can sometimes happen. And we said it's important that we have faith activated in our hearts when we do that. Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we need to have faith activated in us when we do that. We have to read scripture with a plan. And Pastor George made a very powerful point when he said, uh, we grow and develop in our understanding of the word. It is above us. We are not above it. Right? That's a very important equation. We are not above the word. The word is above us. And we grow, we mature, we develop in our understanding of how it is. And that's really, really important. Because in a society like this, where the goalposts are continuously changing, you know, values, um, standards, they're constantly moving and being changed, we need something that's eternal, right? We need something that's steadfast. We need something that's a mark in the sand that says, this is going to be our guide. And the Bible is that. The Bible changes the reader, not just temporarily, but eternally. That's very important. And so we hope that it's been an encouraging series so far. And we're going to conclude with week three of the series this week. And then next week, uh, we'll be live streaming a guest preacher from Durban 
really, really great uh, speaker. She's, um, I've actually worked with her in some of the courses that she's taught to the Father's House pastoral team. She's a registered counselor, amazing uh, pastoral ministry, and really looking forward to receiving from her next week. But as we conclude uh, week three of the series, I want to I do so by taking the information that we've heard, taking the wonderful uh, knowledge that we've gained, and looking at how that translates into revelation. So I want to take the information and look at how that translates into revelation because that's what we're after, right? We want, to, we want to see this real life change. We don't just want to experience God occasionally. We want to encounter him continually. And that involves some application on our side. It involves some, some doing, doing something with the information that we've heard. That's how this information is translated. And the book of James chapter one, if we want to put it really bluntly, it says this, James chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James, as we know, is very, very blunt. He's like the guy that has no filter. Okay, so if you want to read a, read a book in the Bible where there's no filter, James is the one. He just says it like it is. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. He loses his sense of identity when he forgets to do what the word is encouraging him to do. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, uh, but, but, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. That's the category that we want to get to, right? We, we're, we're, we're called as followers of Jesus to live out the principles and the practices that we see in Scripture, not just to hear them, but to do them. But the doing, however, must come from the correct motivation. That's really important. The living and the doing must come from the right place. We're loved by God. We're completely accepted by Him. We're forgiven in Christ. We're saved through His works. And from that place, we live from acceptance. We don't do things to God to get acceptance from Him. We do things because we are already accepted, right? We're loved through Christ. But here's the question that I want to ask us this morning. Is it possible to forget? Is it possible, sometimes, somewhere along the road, to lose sight of the real reason why you're doing something in the first place? And to get to this place where it feels like the impact you're having isn't quite as significant as it was before. Like there seems to be some kind of a disconnect between the motivation and the impact that you had at the beginning of something and the motivation and the impact that you seem to be having at the end of something. Is it possible? Is it possible to forget what you have heard which causes you to doubt what you are doing? Is it possible? I mean, I think, I think it's quite easy, right, to sometimes forget what we've heard and, and, and to sometimes doubt what we're doing. Um, as I shared just now, um, my wife and I have a... 18-month-old toddler uh, in our lives. He is <clears throat> full of life, full of energy, and he reminds us really of God's faithfulness every, every single day. He really is an absolute gift. Um, but he's also, as I've mentioned before, viewed sleep as something of a theory more than a practice. You know, 18 months old. It's kind of just, it's an optional extra, you know, that you can add to your humanity. Yeah, sleep, just add it in there. Not, not really worried about it. So, We've, uh, we've borne the brunt of his sleepless nights over the last 18 months. And um, I remember the one day, I can't remember if it was day or night, Kelly asking me, my wife asking me to get something out of the fridge for her. I think it was a yogurt or a 
fruit or something. And in my sleep-deprived state, I walked over to the fridge and I just opened the fridge door and froze. Just like, stared at the fridge. No idea what I was doing. Just standing there holding the fridge door. Couldn't remember. Had no idea why I'd walked from the room to the kitchen, opened the fridge door and just stared into the, into the ingredients, you know. It's almost like, I kind of feel like if I stared long enough, maybe the ingredients would somehow magically work together and prepare a meal that was warmed up for us. Men, do we do, we, do, we do this? Do we, do, we, do we as men sometimes just stare at the fridge with our hand just, you know, in the nothing box, as it's called, hoping that the meal's going to miraculously make itself? And Kelly was like, are you okay there? Do you need help um, with this moment? But it was fine, I eventually remembered. And I actually didn't feel so bad because the next day she asked me to look for her phone, which she lost, and... When I opened the fridge door, there it was, next to the yogurt that I was not, look, not able to find the previous day. Um, pray for us. It is getting better. But how often do we do that in life? You know, we, just, we sometimes do things, but we forget the real reason why we're doing them. Maybe, maybe you do the grace thing. Maybe you do the, the, the supper time for what we are about to see, Lord, but without actually being truly thankful. Right? I've done that so many times. Lord, for what I'm about to receive, yeah, I'm kind of thankful. Let me just skip that brain, just be honest. Thank you for this, whatever it is. You get what I mean? It's that thing of sometimes just going through the motions without actually realizing, was that a bit personal? Did that, did that, did that attack someone's heart right there? It attacked mine when I was praying this. But, but the thing is, we start out with the motivation, with the energy, with the zeal for something, to use a biblical word, and then somewhere along the line, we forget the real reason why we embarked on this activity. It's like we go through the motions and in doing so, we miss the message. We miss the message and there's, there's a danger to that, you see. And, and, and the danger is if we just carry on down that road, if we continue down the road of doing things without really realizing the reason why we're doing them, pretty soon, pretty soon, we would have a very watered down version of what we're called to live. And the world will have a hard time differentiating us from everyone else and everything else. So I'm going to address the Christians in the room for a moment. If we go long, long enough down the road of, I'm not quite sure what the real reason is, I've forgotten the true purpose, pretty soon you'll, 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 you'll end up having no noticeable difference between the life you're living, the impact you're making, and everyone else around you is making. And this, by the way, necessarily doesn't only apply to, to, to doing, we, we kind of all fall into this trap of being lukewarm, if I can use a biblical term. And, and that's not what we're called to be as disciples, as followers of Jesus. We're called to be shining lights in the world around us, right? We're called to be living as people that have a completely different perspective. We're, we're, we're called to, to live with a joy that's unshakable no matter what happens. When we see the news, sometimes our default position is just like everyone else to resort to the negativity, to the complaining. God's not called us to, to, to live like that. Our language is supposed to be different. Our mindset, our attitudes are supposed to be different. Our behaviors towards other people are supposed to be different. Also, that people will know, they'll look at us and go, there is a hope for humanity and eternity outside of what this world can provide. And unless we get back to this place of, what's the reason why I'm doing this? What's the real cause here? We'll end up missing the message just because we're going through the motions. And I think it's important from, for us from time to time to come back to this place of let's ask that question again. And this is a situation that we can look to Scripture and learn from because it happened in the Bible times also. It was something that we find. And 
I guess you could say everything we experience in life is addressed in Scripture. Uh, and I want us to look at one of those stories this morning as we, as we kind of conclude this good book series and consider how to take the knowledge we have gained and translate it into life-changing application. That's the goal, so that there's some kind of a meaningful impact to what we do as believers. Are, can, you, can you say amen to that this morning, church? Are you with me? The title of our message is, What Would Jesus Do? Who remembers the bracelets, right? Who, who used to wear two of them, just as like a double portion of anointing? But I want us to look this morning at the story of King Josiah from the book of Second Kings as our example of what happens when we remember the source of our motivation, the real reason for our activity. We've had some great information in the series. We're going to be translating it into some action, but let's, let's sustain that activity. Let's make sure that it's from the right place. And by the way, if you are currently in a season where it feels like you are flying and flourishing and you've got that kingdom you know, impact driving what it is that you're doing, maybe you can learn something this morning that you can use to encourage someone else with, right? That's also a form of equipping, how to not only become a disciple, but also to make disciples. So maybe you find some inspiration from that, from, uh, from, this, uh, from these words from that um, this morning. So let's have a look at 2 Kings chapter 22. Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to do a little bit of a context, a little bit of an intro. I'm going to read a chunk of the, of, the, of the chapter and then do a little bit of explaining so we can get a kind of a fuller picture here, right? So sorry, guys, just before you put that up there, I just need to set the little uh, context. And then once we've done that, I'm going to give you three key points on how to get back to this place and then the main takeaway for, for the message this morning. Are you with me? Sounding okay? I promise you won't fall asleep. I'll be very hurt as a pastor. But I'll only be getting back what I used to do when I was growing up to. Uh, I'm sorry. Honest moment. Honest moment. I spoke about my journey a while ago. My parents come to church and then I would just lie there. And then the Lord saved me. He redeemed me. Amen. Second Kings chapter 22. All right, so what is this book all about? Well, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. It's kind of a collection, right? You can almost lump those four books together in a way. 1 Kings, it's the story of God's people, the Israelites, and how their kingdom got disrupted, right? As we know the story, they kind of did things their own way. There was a disruption that happened. They had forgotten the Lord. And now there was a separation in that kingdom. And then 2 Kings, we look at the dispersion. So first Kings, the disruption, what happened? Second Kings, how they got dispersed. Northern Kingdom was Israel. Southern Kingdom is Judah. Broad overview. This is what we're dealing with, right? Two Kings, the nation, the children of Israel had split up. That kind of messed up and now they've kind of gone their own separate ways. And by the way, this is, this is important to sort of bear in mind because this is the line from which Jesus is born, right? David, this is part of the story and we're all one in him. So this is a really cool little background. And then after 2 Kings, we, you know, sort of say in 2 Kings, now that this kingdom is split, we have this historical account. It tells us the stories of what those kings did and whether they were good, whether they did what was right in the sight of God, as the phrase is, or whether they did what was evil in the sight of God. This is where 2 Kings kind of picks up. And there's some major characters there like Isaiah and amazing. I would really would encourage you to go and read this. But one of the major themes that keeps repeating in 2 Kings is that leaders succeed or fail by their relationship and their response to the word of God through the prophets. That's one of the major themes. Leaders succeed or fail by their relationship to the word of God through the prophets. Remember, we had a king, we had a priest, and we had a prophet, right? Those are the major characters in the Old Testament. The kings, they were the leaders, they were the rulers. 
The priests, those were the guys that had to read the word, right? They were in charge of the temple, the worship. And then the prophet, these were the people that would hear from God and then relay the message to, to, the, to the king. This is what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord, if you want to use a King James translation. And it's an amazing principle to see this, that you know, their, their success or failure was really hinged on how they viewed their relationship with God and his word. And that's so true. And it just goes to show that we cannot rule ourselves as people. We cannot rule ourselves as people. When we remove ourselves from God's hand, we remove ourselves from true freedom. You know, true, true freedom in Christianity is not limiting. It's, it's revealing. True freedom reveals our need to have a God who we worship, and it makes us thankful that it's not ourselves that we worship. That's what true freedom in Christianity is, and we have this story here in 2 Kings showing us. And so we're going to pick up the story from 2 Kings 22, verses 1, talking about one of the good guys, right? One of the good kings, King Josiah. And this is his story. I'm going to read a few verses together and then unpack it and then leave you with those three, three key takeaways. So let's have a look here. 2 Kings 22, verses 1 to do. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Any parents of eight-year-olds going, that's probably not a good idea to have an eight-year-old ruling a nation. Anything's possible in God's hands. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedediah. Sounds like one of those guys from Star Wars. And the daughter, the, the, the daughter of Adahiah, she was born in a place whose name I cannot pronounce. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. There's the major theme. And he walked in all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn to the right or to the left. So we immediately see here that this is a good guy, right? He's not like the other introductions. His CV, it said, good guy, good king. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. And even though he was eight years old, I mean, it just shows you whether you're eight or 88, God can use you in his kingdom. Amen. So this is, a, this is the King, King, King Josiah, how his story starts. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Verses three to seven. This is what he does. He has the activity. The, the title is, is uh, Josiah Repairs the Temple. In the 18th year of his reign, the king sent the court secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, Yes, I'm really getting my pronunciation here. To the Lord's temple, he sends them to church, saying, go up to the high priest Hilkah, so that he may total up the silver brought into the Lord's temple, the silver the doorkeepers have collected from the people. I want to see some Excel spreadsheets, please. What's in there? Can you do some accounting for me? Can you total up the offering that we have received in church, the tithe, essentially? What's it for? It's to be given to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. They are, or shall I say, they in turn are to give it to the workmen in the Lord's temple to repair the damage. The temple was damaged, it was vandalized, and Josiah says, we're going to rebuild it. They are to give it to the carpenters, builders, masons to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the temple. But no accounting is to be required from them for, they, for the silver given to them, since they work with integrity. See, do you catch the leadership principle there? Very, very cool. If you work with integrity, you won't have difficulty providing answers to people who ask you and if you employ the right people you won't have to wonder what it is that they're doing because they're working with integrity that's just a leadership principle for free so what what is happening here Josiah says you know what guys we're going to rebuild the temple the place where the Lord is to be worshipped should be in a good state I think that's a good idea church should look healthy respectable right and he's gonna he's actually says you know let's bring the offering in it's going to go to to the work and then this is where the story takes another turn. And, and this is where it speaks to the idea that we've been running with throughout the Good Book series, making sure that we do things from the right place of motivation. It must come from the right motive so that we don't forget 
what it is that we're doing. 2 Kings 22, 8 to 13. This is quite a crazy, crazy moment in the story. The high priest, the guy that's overseeing the temple, Hilkah, told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Just pause there for a moment. The high priest finds accidentally the book of the law in the temple. <laughs> That's like a rugby referee running out onto a rugby match, not knowing the rules. And literally on the floor finding, oh, guys, I found the rule book for rugby. Let's go. How is that possible? How is it that the high priest found the very thing that he is called to do by accident in the doing, in the repairing of the table? Oh, I found the book. Crazy. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And he gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. This, this court secretary read the book. Then he goes back to the king and reported, your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple, have given it to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. So he reports back on the accounting. Then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, the priest Hilker has given me a book. Has given me a book, like not the book, surely. You know, the book that was passed down from generation to generation that's got God's fingerprints over every single word that exposes his will and his ways to humanity, right? Not that book, surely. <laughs> I found a book. Check what happens to King Josiah. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then he commanded the priest and some other guys, the court secretary and the king's servants, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah about the words in this book that has been found. Because great is the Lord's wrath that is kindled against us because our ancestors have not obeyed this book in order to do everything written about us. You know, we've been speaking about how sometimes we can find ourselves staring at the fridge with the open door completely forgetting what it is that we're doing? How about rebuilding the temple of God and stumbling across the Bible? <laughs> How's that for, for not realizing what it is that you're doing or wondering why it is that you're doing it? You've missed the message because you've gone through the motions. He found the book of the law by accident. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, church, that they were all bad people that were doing this work, right? They were, as the, as the word says, they were skillful, they were trustworthy, they, they, were, they were faithful. But those characteristics don't require you to be a follower of Jesus. They're just nice characteristics to have that everybody would expect, right? So good people just misplaced motivation. Good activity, wrong motives. Good activity, wrong motives. And it got so bad that he actually said, oh, I just found this book. Under the busyness of life, under the work that I was doing, I didn't realize that there hidden deep inside one of the rooms under the busyness of life was this precious word of God that has kept us through all these generations. It makes you wonder how the word was hidden, right? Under the busyness of everyday activity. The word has been hidden under some other stuff that's been distracting us from seeing the true meaning. And by the way, that tearing of the clothes thing, that's just a way of saying I'm really upset. It was a way of expressing grief and mourning for something that's happened. It's like he made a Facebook status saying, oh no, people don't use Facebook statuses anymore. What do people do these days? TikTok. He made a TikTok, a selfie TikTok. No, I'm really upset. This is him expressing 
how bad he felt for the children of Israel that had drifted so far away from those principles contained in the word. And I guess here's the thing about Josiah that becomes a turning point for us today as we consider the impact that the Bible has on our lives and our responsibility to, to live it out with the right motivation. When he realized where they were as a nation and how far they had drifted, he did three things. There were three steps that he took. Three um, keys, I guess, that he, that he used to open doors that brought the people back on course, as it were. And these are the three principles that I think we can learn from and apply to our lives today when we want to come back to that place of, I'm doing this with the right motivation. All of this that I'm doing for God is from the right place. And the first one, there was a repentance that took place in the land. There was a repentance. You know, that word repentance is, is a big one in Christian circles. And I think it's one that's maybe been... Um, perhaps abused even over the years. Um, and I think for the simple reason that people have misconstrued those, those ideas, they've, they, they, those wires have been crossed. Meaning there's broadly speaking two kinds of repentance, right? There's two kinds of repentance that, that, that happens. The one is when we turn away from sin to God for salvation. That happens once. That happens in that moment when you acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner, come into my life, forgive me. You pray the sinner's prayer and you turn away from sin and you turn to God. You receive new life in your spirit through Christ Jesus and you are saved. That happens once in the moment of salvation. The second kind of repentance is one that happens not towards our salvation, but towards our sanctification. This is where on an ongoing basis, we turn away from things that aren't helpful in our spiritual journeys. Does that make sense? We turn away from anger. We turn away from bad language. We turn away from things that don't grow us and mature us and develop us as believers. And that's why, you know, you don't respond to an altar call for salvation every week. It's like, oh, you know what, Lord, I swore this week or I was angry with someone this week. Please come into my life and save me again. No, Jesus died once for all sin, past, present, and future. You don't, you don't repent again to salvation. You repent again towards sanctification. Lord, help me be better in this way. We still ask for forgiveness, of course, but it's not, Lord, forgive me and make me a Christian again. It's, Lord, I've just lost my way a bit. Would you please renew me again in my spirit, man, not my flesh, man. Help me be better at this thing. Does that make sense? And so here's what happened when King Josiah realized that they had forgotten the most important book of all, the one book that they should have been basing their lives on. He goes to this prophet, right? Uh, Hilda, that's Hebrew for Hilda. And he says, listen here, please ask the Lord what's happened. What's going to happen? Just come back to me with some kind of a message. And this is how she responds in 2 Kings 23. So the king sent messages and they gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Then the king went to the Lord's temple uh, with all the men uh, of Judah and all the inhabitants, as well as the priests and the prophets, all the people from the youngest to the oldest. He gets this message from this, from this prophet, right? She says, look here, it is bad. You guys have done your own thing. You've forgotten the law. So what's going to happen now? You have to, there has to be some kind of an action. And he says this, uh, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. He reads the Bible to them. Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart. And with all his soul, in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book, all the people agreed to the covenant. King Josiah brought them back to a place of repentance. 
He brought them back from this place of I'm facing my own way, I'm doing my own thing. He said, no, let's turn back. Let's, let's repent of our ways and turn and face the Lord again. He says, Lord, we are making a covenant with you today. And you know what's so powerful about that? When the leader of the people, King Josiah, found the word, it caused an entire nation to turn around and turn back to God to face him again. It shows you the power of what the word can do, right? Friends, point number one is that if we want to come back to a place where we find meaning in what we do, we've got to start from a place of turning back. There has to be this first step of repentance, turning back towards our king again, to face him again. Can you say amen to that this morning? Secondly, not only was there a repentance, a turning, there was also a removal that took place. There was a removal. And here's actually what separated King Josiah from all the other guys before him. Not only did he call the people back to a place of repentance and he renewed this covenant, but he removed all the other stuff that wasn't supposed to be there in the temple. The stuff that kept the word hidden, the stuff that wasn't meant to be there in the first place, the idols that the children of Israel had set up, essentially. That's what they're called. 2 Kings 23, verses 4 to 6, it's an aggressive piece of scripture. It says this, Then the king commanded the high priest Hilkah, and the priests of the second rank and the doorkeepers to bring out of the Lord's sanctuary all the articles made for Baal, that's the evil God, Asherah and all the stars in the sky. People were doing, um, what are those things that you get in the U magazine? Um, with the different star signs. Long before the herald was invented. There it is there, right there in Second Kings. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with the idolatrous priests the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the cities of Judah and in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. He burned, uh, uh, sorry, they had burned incense to Baal and to the sun and moon and constellations, all these star signs and the stars in the sky. He brought them, he brought out the Asherah poles from the Lord's temple to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. He burned it, beat it to dust, wow, and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. It's aggressive, I know. It's a strong action, but... This is what it means to come back to a place of doing things for God in the right way. Some things have got to go. Some other things just can't keep occupying space in our lives. You know, we, not, we might not have physical idols set up, you know, in a temple like a pole and a statue and things that we've built, but we certainly have idols that we make for ourselves out of the things in life. And without realizing it, they very quickly begin to take up space in our hearts, which is where God wants to reside. Remember, according to the New Testament, we are the temple of God. And so we sometimes allow these things to build up. And without you know, sort of realizing it, these things become some form of an idol. And, and what that simply means is preferring anything else above God's glory in your life. That's what an idol is. It's simply worshiping, preferring anything else other than God's glory in your life. And by the way, they don't have to look like those big statues that those guys are talking about, big and bold and, you know, in your face, easy to identify, you know, idols of whatever, money or alcohol or power or fame or careers or whatever. They can sometimes be subtle too. Those idols, those things that have crept into our hearts can sometimes be very, very subtle. We can make an idol out of recognition, for example. You know, we feel better about ourselves when people notice us and give us the recognition that we think we deserve and we start to worship that feeling. We value other people's words above God's words over us. And then God's like, you know, what about 
the word that I've spoken over you, the notice that I've given over you, the attention that I've paid for you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> I call you my beloved. And God's like, if you really took my word literally and seriously, it wouldn't matter one bit if you got recognition from other people or not. My words would still be able to give you complete joy. Recognition become, it can become an idol. Is this getting a bit personal? Is it okay? Are we still, we're still in church? Jesus is Lord. Jesus loves the little children. Okay, just come back there, Lloyd. As Pastor George said, can you get some Coca-Cola with the sushi? The sushi is a bit hard to digest. Just give me some Coca-Cola. Let it go down okay. But, but idols happen, right? We set these things up, sometimes subconsciously. Recognition, pride, laziness, our own insecurities. That can sometimes become an idol. I become so comfortable with an insecurity that I feel I have. I've invited around my campsite, fire, a bra with it, and then it's like, oh, yeah, you know what? It's, I'm just, I'll just stay here. I don't like that growth thing. It's too scary. Made insecurity an idol. And if we're not careful, very soon we'll end up with a strange sense of, I don't feel like what I'm doing is making a significant kingdom impact anymore. I don't know where this lack of motivation is coming from. You've got this strange sense of tension and awkwardness. And you know, that's what the Holy Spirit will do. If there's that thing sitting in your heart, that thing that's occupying space in, in, the, in the temple, he'll, he'll, he'll nudge you on that. He'll keep reminding you. It's like that irritating thing that won't seem to go away, that constant tension that you feel. That's the Holy Spirit saying, this is an area that needs working on because he knows where you need to make a change. And I suppose if we go back to that temple, if we go back to our hearts, to the space that God alone should occupy, perhaps it's because we've let something occupy space there that he knows has been distracting us from the real reason why we should be doing something. Amen? It's, it's a removal that has to take place. We need to repent, turn back to God. We have to remove some things that shouldn't be there. Some things should be reserved for God and God alone. And then finally, we also need to reinstate some things. We need to reinstate some things. It's the next logical step, Right? We've turned, we've taken away, and now we need to reinstate some things. Once we've made a commitment, this is a, this is a very important step. There's some basic, powerful practices that I believe God is calling us as the church back to in the season. God is calling his people back to these, these basic, powerful practices that, that actually categorize what the church is. They're not necessarily new. They're certainly uncomplicated or difficult to do, but they form the foundation upon which the right motivation is built. And for King Josiah and the people he was leading, what did that look like? What did he reinstate? They celebrated the Passover together. That's what they did. They celebrated the Passover. 2 Kings 23, verses 21 to 23 says this, Then the king commanded all the people, Observe the Passover of the Lord your God, as is written in the book of the covenant. No such Passover had ever been observed, from the time of the judges who judged Israel through the entire time of the kings of Israel and Judah. This was a significant Passover that he, that he reinstated. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Lord's Passover was observed in Jerusalem. He, he did something. He reinstated something that we read about 2,000 years later. They repented. They turned toward God. They renewed a covenant. And then, they, and then they reinstated something that was so, so, so powerful. They shared a meal together where they remembered and gave thanks to the Lord for how he had spared their lives in Egypt. When God killed the firstborn, he passed over 
their doorposts that were covered with the blood of the Lamb. And as we know in the New Testament, Jesus spared us our lives as the Lamb of God. And so we call that celebration of the Passover communion. That's what it is. It's remembering, reinstating our need for God. The question we ask ourselves is, what is God asking you to reinstate in this season, church? Is there something that God is calling you to do differently this week? What practice, what, what principle, what is he calling you to do differently? And maybe it's time for us as a church to make some new and make some fresh commitments to God. Maybe it's time to turn back towards him in some area. It's time to remove some things, some of those idols that creep up. And maybe it's time to reinstate some things that help keep us motivated and fueled from the right source. I wanted to, I wanted to end this morning and encourage you with a final thought as we, as we close. I'm, I'm mindful of the time. Um, and speaking of application, I guess this is where, this is where your pastor you know, applies the same lesson himself. I have to give some kind of an application to this message. Um, King Josiah, he was, a, he was a young man that brought about something of a revival in the land. You can call it that. This is, this, he essentially created a revival for the people of Judah. There was a renewed sense and awareness of God's presence in the land. He, he rebuilt the temple. He reinstated the Passover. It says no such Passover was, was observed from before, way before. This was a significant thing that he did. And it all started when, when they realized that the word of God was there. It started with and through the word of God. When he found it, he realized you know, this is where we should be in our relationship with God. It should, we should be in a place of intimacy with him. And he helped them get there through repentance, removal, and reinstating. One man, one man, a young man, through the power of the word of God, turned the hearts of an entire nation to come back to, worship, to, to worshiping him. And so here's the thing. Here's what I want to leave you with this morning as we, as we close this message. What if God is calling you to be a Josiah where you are? What if God is calling you? What if this morning the call is you go and be that agent that brings about a revival where you are? What could happen if you, just like King Josiah, accessed the power of the word of God that scripture tells us is the sword of the spirit and through it placed God back at the center of the environment that you're in, the classroom, the boardroom, the sports field, the office space, the shopping center, the dinner table, whatever it is, could there be another revival where you are and beyond that's waiting in the simple obedience of God's people to his word? Church, what if God is calling you to be a Josiah where you are? Would you be brave enough to say yes to that call? <laughs> Would you be willing, just like this young man, to to bring about these changes and to see, who knows, an entire nation turn and face God again and place Him at the center. I'll close with this final verse, Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Can you say amen to that this morning, church? Would you stand with me as we pray and close? Yeah, let's just take a moment and um, commit this message and ourselves to God as we reflect on 
what He might be calling us to do. You know, we spoke about outreach and we spoke about a church and a town um, that needs to be awakened, set on fire, I guess, if you want to use an old school term, for the things of God. And maybe we've heard something this morning to inspire us along that journey. So let's just commit ourselves and, and I guess our, our action, our motivation uh, to God to make sure it comes from the right place. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that any obstacle we might face, any insecurity we might be battling with, you have addressed it in and through the power of your holy scriptures. And Father, this morning we just are mindful that we can sometimes forget the real reason why we're doing the things that we're doing. Somewhere along the road, our, our glasses get misted up and we can't see the real reason. We can't, we can't find that source of that motivation. And this morning, Father, we as a church, as your people, make a commitment to turn back to you. Father, whatever, in whatever area that is, we, we, we turn away from our own way and we turn back to you and we make ourselves available. We say, Lord, show us the things that we need to remove and show us the things that we need to reinstate. And Father, according to this incredible story, we, we recognize that there is such power when we do that. Your word is the source. Your word is the sustenance, Lord, that guides us along this way. So we thank you that we can rest and rely on the power of your word as we make these changes that we can see a revival take place, Father. It might look different to whatever, you know, to what a picture we had in mind, but Father, a family being reconciled again, a business turning around and doing things God's way, a sports team that, that changes language and behavior. Father, whatever that revival looks like, we thank you in advance that it's possible through you. It may seem impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. We just commit as your people to being obedient and, and willing to serve you. And church, if I could just have one or two more minutes of your time, um, I feel like I want to just pray for us, pray for someone specifically maybe that feels like they have maybe gone down that route of doing things their own way. And so just with every eye closed and every head bowed, I'm not going to make this awkward or uncomfortable, but I do want to call for some kind of a response. I'm just going to ask right where we're standing, just for you to raise your hand, just in a moment. I'm just going to say, you know what, if there's someone that feels like, you know what, Lord, I've, I've done something with, with, the, with the wrong motivation. That's it. I've, I've forgotten the source. I've, I've got to the fridge and opened the door and I've forgotten what I'm doing. And I just want to take a moment and pray for you right where you are. So if that's you, with every eye closed and every head bowed, would you mind just raising your hand long enough for me to see it? And I'll pray with you right where you are. Thank you. There's so many hands that have gone up um, everywhere. It's not an awkward thing. This is, just, this is a you and God thing. This is a holy moment. And we said it just now. We just want to you know, have a good experience. We want to encounter Him. And this is where life change happens, man. It's in the encounter. Thank you so much, everybody. You can put your hands down. I'm just taking a moment and pray. Father, for every hand raised, for every person, family situation that that represents, I thank you that you will pour out your spirit in abundant ways. Father, would you rekindle again that first love, that flame of faith that burns so brightly, Father, that brings about a course correction. God, I thank you for renewed kingdom impact. I thank you for sustained motivation from your word, from the right source that propels every person forward into a new season. Thank you, Father, for freedom. Thank you there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have saved us and set us free. And I, I thank you, Father, that you are opening those gates and opening us out into a wide open, expansive environment full of joy, full of freedom again, full of your mercy, full of your 
your grace. And so I thank you, God, that you are renewing. You are helping us turn back to our first love in you. And Jesus, I just honour you so much that you are for us, not against us. And we commit ourselves to you and thank you for these precious moments in your, in your presence. And we thank you that your presence goes with us now as we go. And in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Church, can we just celebrate God's love and faithfulness one more time? Can we give Him a, a worship and a shout of praise? Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for being part of church. We've got a prayer team up front here if you'd like personal prayer afterwards. There's communion uh, available as well. An info counter if you'd like to fill out a hello card, get in touch with us some way. Otherwise, stick around for a cup of coffee and we'll see you next week. God bless everyone. Thank you so much.